this morning, as we look at what Scripture tells us, we're going to be talking about love, and we're going to be talking about the difference that it makes to know that you're loved. Now, do you believe that that makes a difference? It makes a difference if you know that you're loved. And this portion of Scripture that we're looking at as we continue our study of the book of Romans, it displays that. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, I'm going to read from verse 31 down to verse 39. But this is what it tells us in this portion of Scripture. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to look at Your Word together today and to think about the difference that You make in our lives as we come to become convinced of Your love. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Your Word today, we pray that by Your grace that we would understand this concept more fully and more completely, that our walk with You would grow even just more uh, deep as we meditate on this concept. And Lord, we pray that You would have a direct impact on our day-to-day lives through a developed understanding of what it means to know that we are loved by the One who made us. So we thank You, Lord, for the privilege that it is to be able to look at Your Word together, and we commit this time to You now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Each evening uh, during, or excuse me, one evening uh, each week, uh, typically on Thursday nights, I teach an online class in biblical counseling for pastors who are in training. And so when it's appropriate, one of the things that I like to do is I like to share case studies with the guys that are in the class, specifically case studies regarding counseling issues that I've either directly observed, uh, directly experienced, or that I've recently read about. And recently I was sharing with the guys a case study about a woman who was struggling with a high amount of negative self-talk. So this was the primary thing that she was telling herself over and over again. She was always putting herself down. She was always minimizing her value in the eyes of God. This was a persistent long-term pattern in her day-to-day life. And basically in connection with some of her background experiences, Uh, with some of her family history and some of the things that took place while she was growing up, she would regularly engage in preaching a message to her heart that she was both unloved and 
unlovable. Meaning, you know, just, I can't be loved. Nobody can love me. I am unlovable. And she preached this message to herself so frequently that she became convinced that it was true. And unfortunately, she ended up trying to soothe that emotional pain in several very unhealthy ways that had some long-term damage on her that she was trying to get past. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, and when you look at many portions of Scripture, particularly, you know, when you look through the whole message of, of the entire Bible, really, one of the messages that God goes to great lengths to communicate to us is that He loves His children. That's abundantly clear no matter where you are in the Scriptures. So regardless of what your past history or what your present-day struggles might look like, this is a truth that if you're a child of God, He wants you to understand and He wants you to embrace. And I think knowing that you're loved makes a huge difference in the way your day-to-day life goes. It impacts all areas of our day-to-day lives. It impacts our perspective toward our circumstances, toward our relationships. It even impacts our, our perspective toward the future as we look ahead. To know that we're loved makes a huge difference. And it also impacts the way we relate to God Himself. Because if you think that God despises you, you're going to relate to Him one way. But if you believe that He loves those He's called as His own, you're going to relate to Him another way. And when you look at Romans chapter 8, as this section concludes this, this chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 down to verse 39, what these verses do is they demonstrate the depth of God's love for His children with the goal of thoroughly convincing our hearts of that truth. And when you look through this portion of Scripture, there's a series of questions that we're invited to ask that are brought up. And I think one of those questions that we're invited to ask here is found in verses 31 and 32, and that's this. Who can come against those God loves? Who can come against those God loves? Let me reread those two verses. It says in Romans 8, verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 32, it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So you see some rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul is starting off this section by asking. Now, rhetorical questions, these are things that could be very useful when you're trying to wrestle through some deeper level subjects or some deeper level concepts. And so throughout this portion of Scripture, you have the Apostle Paul employing this approach by asking rhetorical questions to help the readers of these verses wrestle with deeper level things. And he asks us to wrestle with the reality of what it looks like when God is for us or what it means to be able to say that God is for us. Now, in this world, there are going to be plenty of things that may set themselves against you. There are people who will oppose you. Uh, There are ideologies that really might not be working in your best interest. There are adversarial circumstances that you might face. Scripture even tells us that there are spiritual battles that take place around us that we might not be directly seeing, but they're very much a reality. For those who walk with Jesus Christ, there are spiritual battles taking place, spiritual forces that may actually seek to come against you. But when you look at what this portion of Scripture is trying to illustrate and communicate to our hearts, 
it invites us to be asking questions like this. Is there any person or power or government or life circumstance that possesses a greater strength or a greater power than God who spoke this world into existence and and upholds it and sustains it by His powerful Word? What it's saying here is, you know, it's asking the question, if God is for us, right, if God is for you, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that is, no one. But the truth is, even with this knowledge firmly planted in our hearts, it can be very easy for us to still feel like major efforts of our, our effort, or, you know, ma- ma- major... Um, just major portions of our effort, I should say, or major amounts of our time, major amounts of our energy are being spent on survival. Do you ever feel like that during certain seasons of your life? Like the majority of your energy, like the majority of your time is being spent on just getting through the season that you happen to be at. We have daily needs. We have long-term needs. Does God see these needs? You know, do these concerns uh, rise to his level of attention? You know, are these things that, that he uh, perceives and sees in your day-to-day life and in my day-to-day life? And when you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it tells us that God desires to meet our needs. The way it phrases it here, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Well, what was our greatest need? Our greatest need was new spiritual life and a restored relationship with our Creator. And to meet that need, the Scripture tells us that God gave us Jesus Christ, His Son, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Elsewhere in Scripture, this is spoken of as well. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, He Himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. That's what the Scripture tells us about Christ, about what He's done for us, atoning for our sins. So if God is so concerned about what we need that He's willing to give His Son for us, how much anxiety should we start to internalize about our other needs? And how much anxiety should we allow ourselves to be continually dwelling or welcoming into our lives about our needs after looking at a portion of Scripture like this that demonstrates that God meets our greatest needs? You know, how much anxiety should we allow ourselves to internalize related to future challenges or seasons of adversity or the trials that seem to come out of nowhere and surprise us? I think the proper answer to that question is zero. Because none of these things can successfully come against those whom God loves. Recently read a story, very recently, this week. And it was a story um, about a family who had just purchased a new vehicle. And they had another vehicle that was still fine. It still operated well, but it was a little bit older. And it didn't have much value at this point. They realized that trading it in wasn't really going to, you know, change much about the bottom line price of the vehicle that they were buying. So they thought, you know, instead of trading it in, why don't we just find somebody to give it to? And so at one point they thought, all right, well, why don't we just put an ad online and just say, hey, free car, come and get it. And then they thought, wait a second, we're going to have 30,000 people contact us about this free car. Let's not do that. 
let's put a price on it. But they put the price about a a few hundred dollars less than what its actual value would be. And they put it online, and they thought, let's just wait and see who emerges and see who we can bless with this car. So someone contacted them and said, hey, I'd be interested in purchasing that car from you. Is there any chance you can hold it for me for a week because I get my tax return next week? I don't have enough money right now, but I will have enough money in probably just a week, and I'd love to buy it. And they said, we're sorry, we can't hold the car. And they're like, all right, well, I was trying to um, just find something. You know, I'm a single mom, I've got three kids, and it looked like it was a decent car, and that model's known for being reliable, but I understand you can't sit around and wait probably have a lot of other offers, and they said, yeah, that, that, that's true, but we can't hold the car because we're just going to give it to you for free. And the woman said, and this, there was a, it was all via text, and so they showed pictures of the text between them, and obviously she was amazed and was very grateful and couldn't believe what they were doing, but they said, yeah, come, you know, we'll, we'll meet up with you, we'll sign it over to you. I think they ended up selling it to her technically for $20, so that there would be like a legal record of it, and so she'd only have to pay taxes on $20 uh, of a sale. But effectively, they were giving the car to her for free. And when they discovered her circumstance, they actually took another $500, and they tucked it in the glove box, and they just set it there with the thought that hopefully at some point soon she would notice it. And when I, when I read that story, I thought that was fantastic. I enjoyed reading that. And I was thinking, in light of what this portion of Scripture tells us about God meeting our needs, you know, if we with our limited resources could have our hearts touched to actually try and meet one another's needs and help one another overcome different seasons of adversity in life, how much more can our Lord do on our behalf and for our good? You know, if we as sinful human beings with all our limitations and limited resources and limited abilities could have our hearts moved to help somebody else in need, how much more could our Lord, who created us in His own image, address those needs even deeper and show even greater concern? And what does the Scripture tell us? The Scripture tells us that He gave His own Son for our good, for our benefit to meet our greatest need. The Scripture goes on to talk about the fact that there is accusation and condemnation that may come your way as a follower of Christ, but it invites us to ask the rhetorical question, who can accuse or condemn God's children? Look at verse 33 and verse 34. It says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. So here in this portion of Scripture, while demonstrating God's great love for His children, you have Paul transitioning his comments to an additional form of adversity or an additional form of opposition that we as believers in Jesus Christ might face. And in these verses, he speaks about the reality of accusation and the reality of condemnation. Now, have you ever experienced these things during the course of your life? Have you ever been on the receiving end of accusation or the receiving end of condemnation? I suspect that probably at some point in your life you were. I think that this is a reality that all of us as believers face to one degree or another. And something that I've noticed by observation and by personal experience is that accusation and condemnation can sometimes, and maybe even often, come with obedience. 
Think about that for just a second. Accusation and condemnation coming along with obedience. Meaning, you know, and again, I realize this would seem kind of odd to say, but I definitely have noticed this pattern over the course of my life, meaning that there have been several seasons of my life where the Lord has made it abundantly clear to me that I was supposed to obey Him in particular areas that either stretched my faith or involved me making some big changes that either uprooted our household or whatever it may have been. And I've noticed a recurring pattern during those seasons of my life. And one of those things was each time I said yes to God in regard to some of those big things, that He was really, really stretching me with things that weren't automatically easy for me to say yes to Him with, things that weren't automatically easy for me to be obedient to Him in regard to, I've also, in those same seasons or close to them, had to deal with some level of worldly accusation or condemnation. So I remember when I first agreed to become a pastor, for many, many years, I had a a conversation with somebody, uh, with a friend this week, we were talking about the nature of becoming a pastor, and I remember for years, I fought that idea as hard as I could. I really, really wanted to resist it, even though I could sense probably from the time I was 15 years old that the Lord wanted me to do that, but for a variety of reasons, I, I thought, no, I don't want to say yes to God in that regard. I thought it would be weird. Ironically now, 21 years into doing this, I love it. But I didn't know I would love it. I thought I might dislike it. And um, I remember when I finally got to the spot where I said yes to God in that regard and had peace about that, right in line with that was accusation and condemnation that I dealt with from a surprise area of adversity. I just didn't expect to see it and experience it. I remember when I first got involved in church planting. You know, and you think to yourself, this is, this is how naive I can be. You know, I thought when I first became a pastor, everybody would like, you know, clap and pat me on the back and say, hey, you're doing a great thing. You're doing a great thing. It doesn't work that way, right? And then I thought, hey, when I got involved in church planting, people would be like, hey, you know, you're really trying to be like a soldier on the front lines here. You know, great job. And uh, no, that didn't happen. I mean, that encouragement came from some angles, but then out of the blue, I I was dealing with some accusation and condemnation, and I I was like, where is that coming from? I didn't think, and then, but then I started learning to experience it. And then when I started helping out with other ministries, I noticed every time God stretches you, and every time you say, all right, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you in this regard, a test seems to show up. It kind of tests your resolve, and kind of, but at the same time also confirms your faith in the Lord, where you're like, where you have to wrestle with, all right, wait a second, Lord, I did hear correctly from you, right? Okay, well, if I heard correctly from you, then I'm just going to press on, and this too will pass. And it always passes. But I was thinking about that this week in looking at this, because it, it asks the question effectively, you know, who can accuse or who can condemn God's children? When those seasons come, and I think the more you try and kind of step out on that, the, the far edge of the diving board in regard to your faith, you know, the more that you say yes to God, the more you allow Him to stretch you, the more you're probably likely to experience worldly condemnation or worldly accusation from somewhere. It'll probably blindside you and come from an area that you don't really expect. But we also need to understand the source of those accusations and the remedy when these things come up. Now, in the book of Revelation... 
chapter 12. I'm not going to read that for us, but I'll just give you the reference if you want to look it up. In that portion of Scripture, Revelation 12.10, it tells us something about Satan. And it gives Satan a label. It tells us that Satan accuses God's people, that he's the accuser of the brethren. And I believe that one of the things that the devil loves to do is to inspire others to join him in bringing accusation or condemnation against those who live for Christ's glory. Because the goal, if you're seeking to live for Christ's glory, from Satan's perspective, is to discourage you from doing that. So accusation and condemnation can be pretty useful tools if you're trying to discourage somebody as they're trying to give glory to Christ. And Scripture tells us that that's one of Satan's favorite things to do to bring accusation against the children of God. But at the same time, even though that's the source of all of this, we need to also remember the remedy. There's a remedy for unholy condemnation. There's a remedy for unholy accusation. Jesus, we're told in this portion of Scripture, Jesus who died to pay for our sins, Jesus who rose in victory over sin, Satan, and death, Romans chapter 8 tells us He intercedes on our behalf to the Father. And we're told that the Father justifies us. The Father declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. So even though you may be on the receiving end of accusation and condemnation, it just doesn't stick in the courtroom of God. Because we have Christ interceding for us. And we have the Father justifying us, which means in His courtroom He looks at you and He declares you righteous with the righteousness of Christ, which was added to your account the moment you trusted in Christ. Unholy condemnation, unholy accusation cannot stick to the one whom God has already justified. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to make clear in this portion of Scripture. So nothing can ultimately come against, nothing can ultimately you know, successfully accuse or eternally condemn God's Children, this is convincing evidence of God's love, is it not? And again, it makes a difference to believe that we're loved, and and, and this is convincing evidence of God's love. And so Paul takes a moment to now elaborate on that concept even further by also explaining to us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Look at what it tells us in verses 35 and 36. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, won't it be nice when the day comes, and by the way, this day is coming, but won't it be nice when the day comes when we no longer experience suffering? I look forward to that day. I suspect that you probably look forward to that day as well. When suffering is not a part of our day-to-day experience, we're told, you know, in the future when we're glorified in the Lord's presence, suffering is going to be a past tense term. It's not going to be a current reality. Again, that day is coming, but in the meantime, we need to realize that right now during this season, we may experience things like tribulation, you know, and Paul lists some of these things here, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine nakedness, danger, the threat of physical violence. These are things that right now you and I might experience, and maybe some of us more so than others. And this is a sad reality of what it looks like to live in a fallen world. This world is going to be made over, and Christ will rule and reign, but we're in that in-between time while we're waiting for Him to fully fulfill these things. 
But even though those things may come, the Scripture reminds us effectively that they're only temporary challenges when they're viewed next to the bigger picture of our life story. And even though these challenges are things that may weigh on our hearts, weigh on our minds, maybe even produce anxiety in a temporary way, they only have the capacity to bring us momentary pain. It's only momentary pain that they can bring to you or to me. They do not have the power, the Scripture tells us, to separate us from the eternal love of Jesus Christ. They are momentary pains, momentary inconveniences, here for a moment and they pass, but they cannot separate us from His love. And Paul emphasizes that there is no earthly power, there is no earthly circumstance that has the capacity to separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, as we see demonstrated here throughout Romans 8, Paul makes a point to demonstrate this truth from almost every angle imaginable. You know, he keeps using example after example to convince our hearts that nothing can separate the children of God from the love of God. Heard a um, very tragic story a few years ago. Uh, are you familiar with a, a Christian singer named Stephen Curtis Chapman? Familiar with that name? I, you know, I, he's, still, he's still making music. I, I imagine he would probably say the pinnacle of his career was probably about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but may, maybe, you know, maybe I'm mistaken. I don't, I don't know what album sales currently are. But he's pretty well known. And I read something that broke my heart. His family uh, adopted a couple daughters. They had uh, several children already and then adopted a few uh, daughters. And in the midst of uh, one of his children learning to drive, so his son had just started driving, his son was pulling the family car out of their driveway and unfortunately, one of those little girls that was adopted quickly, unexpectedly ran out behind the car and was hit. And she died. Now, they didn't know right away whether she was going to live or die. Uh, but Stephen Curtis Chapman, after he had the chance to heal up a little bit, started telling people about this experience and what it was like. And looking at his 16-year-old son, and he said, instinctively, one of the things that I believe that the Lord wanted me to do in that moment as I picked up my daughter off our driveway and I got her in the car as I was speeding away to the hospital I rolled down the window and I yelled out to my son who is shell-shocked in our driveway son I love you son I love you that's what he wanted to communicate to his son in the in that moment obviously his son didn't do this on purpose obviously you know his little daughter you know not knowingly just ran out there it's every parent's nightmare and in that moment he felt like the lord said to his heart as you're speeding off roll down this window yell out to him he needs to hear it now more than he's ever needed to hear it in his life son i love you what was he saying in that moment no circumstance not even your biggest mistake not even something that you may regret the rest of your life is going to separate you from the love that i have for you I love you on your best day, and I love you on your worst day. And today's your worst day, and I want you to hear it from my mouth. I love you. And he yelled it to him as he was driving his daughter's lifeless body to the hospital. Isn't that precisely what the Lord is using a passage like this to try and communicate to you and to me? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And I think God wants us to have a confidence in our hearts and in our minds related to that perspective. I think He wants you and me to live our days completely confident that what is spoken of here in Romans chapter 8 
is absolutely true. And it doesn't just apply to somebody else who's lived an easier life than you or a mistake-free life, and there is no such person. It applies to you and to me. To all those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 37 down to the end of the chapter. It says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love how this chapter of Scripture resolves. You know, we're told here that we aren't helpless victims to the struggles of this life and and what it's like to live in this world. Rather, in this portion of Scripture, we're told that through Christ who loves us, we're made conquerors who do battle with the, the power that He graciously supplies. And by the way, this, this is a hopeful portion of Scripture that um, it's actually a passage that uh, I very commonly read when I have the opportunity to officiate for funerals. Because I think it's one of those moments where it's helpful for our minds and our hearts to be reminded of this truth. Precisely at the moment when we seem most powerless or most helpless, the moment of our physical death, this Scripture tells us that we can remain confident in God's love. If we are His children, if He's called us unto Himself, if He's justified us, we can remain confident in His love. Death cannot separate a child of God from the love of God. Spiritual beings like angels and demons cannot separate us from His love. Present and future tribulation cannot separate us from His love. Not a single thing in all creation can separate those who trust in Christ from the love of Christ. The love of God for us is anchored for us in Christ Jesus. And it's an inseparable bond. And it's a love that never depended on us to begin with. We couldn't be good enough to deserve it. You know, we never, even our best day, so think about your best day, right? Anyone ever make it through a day mistake-free? I haven't, I haven't had that day yet, right? Um, and I know this side of heaven, that's not going to happen for me, Right? But even on your best day or even on your worst day, we, you know, we couldn't be good enough to deserve this kind of love from God. And we certainly can't be humanly perfect enough to maintain it. So think about that for a second. We could never be good enough to deserve it, and we can never be perfect enough to maintain it. This is not a love that ever depended on us to earn, and it doesn't depend on us to keep. It's an unlimited unconditional form of love that God delights to show to all He has rescued and redeemed through Jesus. And it makes a difference in your life and in my life to be convinced completely that we're loved this way. When we're operating from a foundation that has the love of God at its base, we act differently. We approach life differently. I think acceptance of this truth impacts the message that we preach to our hearts. So I mean, just think about this. Over the course of your days, if no matter what circumstance comes your way, you don't like how you look in the mirror in the morning, regardless of that, the Lord loves you. You have a day that's filled with a whole host of mistakes. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
If you have a day that you look at and you say, you know, I wish I could do that day over. Well, guess what? We all have those days. And again, we come back to this portion of Scripture and it reminds us that we need to go through life as children of God, as those who trust in Christ, confident of what this Scripture actually teaches. That the love of God did not depend on us to earn and it doesn't depend on us to keep. And it impacts the way we treat ourselves. It impacts the message we preach to our hearts. I think it impacts the nature of your marriage because it will impact the way you treat your spouse. I think it impacts the way you raise your children because even in subtle ways that you probably won't always immediately pick up on, there will be things that carry through in the way you treat them because of how grateful you are for how God treats you, certainly in that context with Stephen Curtis Chapman. In that moment, he wasn't planning that moment. He wasn't planning those words, but because he spent his life so convinced of the love he was receiving from God through Jesus Christ, he was able in that moment of trial to speak what was on his heart and speak what was on his mind and communicate it. It impacts the way you raise your children. It impacts the way you you influence your friends. It impacts every area of your life, the way you perceive trials and challenges. Whatever you may endure, will be impacted by that knowledge. What's this Scripture teaching us? It's teaching us that if you're a child of God, if you trust in Jesus Christ, be confident of God's enduring love for His children. Believe that He loves you. One last Scripture I want to read for us as we finish. It's from 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And it says this, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at Your Word this morning and meditate on these truths and think about the things that You communicate here. Father, we recognize that this is a portion of Scripture that that You want us to be aware of. You want us to know these things. You want us to be living out the kind of truths that we read about here. Lord, when You called us unto Yourself, Your calling didn't depend on our goodness. Your calling didn't depend on, didn't depend on us being perfect already. Lord, You called sinners unto Yourself. And You took us, we who were objects of Your wrath, And through faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ, You made us objects of Your mercy. And Lord, it makes a difference for us to grasp these truths and to anchor our hearts to these truths because this world preaches the opposite message. This world is filled with conditional friendships, conditional relationships, people that show us uh, very temporary and very fickle forms of fake love that really either tends to fall in line with infatuation or whether or not there's something they believe we can offer them at any given point. Lord, there's so many people in our lives that each of us could probably point to that we realize that I guess in their eyes we're, we're, we're good and great as long as we're useful. And the second we stop being useful, we kind of lose that shine. And then we look at this portion of Scripture and it tells us that nothing can separate your children from your love. That trials cannot, that spiritual forces cannot, that adversity cannot, that threats of physical violence cannot. 
None of these things can separate us from your love. And you're, you're loving us not just because it's an action that you, you willed yourself to do, but also because it's part of your nature to be loving. You are the perfection of love. And so, Lord, we recognize we don't deserve this kind of love, but it does have an impact on us to, to receive and to welcome and to live in the midst of So Lord, regardless of whatever message we have mistakenly preached to our hearts in the past, we pray that this is a message that we would begin preaching to our hearts going forward. That this would be a portion of Scripture that You sear into our minds and into our consciences so that it's never far from our thinking. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that You do this and that You communicate these things to us. Thank You for using the Apostle Paul to write these things down. And we pray that by Your grace that we would walk with You, that we would love You, that we would display Your love to others, but that we would never forget the truth of what Your Word has communicated. It makes a difference to know that You love us this way. And we thank You, Lord, for making that difference in our lives. So we commit this day and we commit this week to Your care. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.